Well, if you're just joining us this morning, then um, let me just share that we have begun, just last week, a new series of reflections together on the subject of what it takes to build even more remarkable relationships in the various spheres of our uh, life. Uh, Many of us, I suggested last week, uh, find ourselves settling into merely regular relationships, relationships which are normal enough, but which are frustrating and irritating and difficult. And I suggested last week that if we're going to rise above the regular in our relationships, then we're going to have to allow God to lengthen and strengthen our heart strengths. We're going to ask God to help us untangle that wound-up knot of perceptions, attitudes, patterns of behavior, uh, somewhat childish ones perhaps that we developed earlier in life, so that we can learn to love people with that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Uh, that we looked at together last week. This morning, I want to look with you at one additional passage from 1 Corinthians, this time from the preceding chapter, chapter 12, because I think we find here a particularly crucial set of perspectives that are needed in building the quality of relationships with others that look more and more like that uh, 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. So I want to welcome you to open up in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read responsibly from verses 12 through 27. And uh, as has been our recent custom, I want to welcome you to rise as you're able and let's read together from God's word aloud. I'll read verse 12 and then you 13 and so on through 27. Let me just observe that the Apostle Paul here is speaking to the church at Corinth. Corinth was the Chicago of its day. It was a city of broad shoulders. It was an uncommonly industrious, sophisticated, cosmopolitan, well-educated city. And yet, if you read between the lines and even the bold-faced text in the scriptures there, you note that the Corinthian church was beset by conflicts. There were a lot of relationship challenges within the Corinthians church, and Paul, Paul is often speaking to them, and he does so again by laying out Uh, the great theology of the body of Christ uh, in this particular text. The body is a unit, he writes, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. In other words, Paul is saying here that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have an uncommon new sense of identity and passion for finding unity, seeking unity uh, with Christ and with uh, other human beings because of the power of God's Holy Spirit uh, at work. Uh, And then Paul goes on and says, now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. The 
But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. An email recently came in to the tech support department of a leading relationship software company. And the text read as follows. Dear tech support, Last year, I upgraded from Boyfriend 5.0 to Husband 1.0, and I noticed a distinct slowdown in overall system performance. The slowdown was particularly evident in the flower and jewelry applications, which operated flawlessly under Boyfriend 5.0. In addition, Husband 1.0 uninstalled many other valuable programs, such as Romance 9.5, and personal attention, 6.5. It then installed undesirable programs, such as NASCAR 6.0, NFL 5.1, and golf clubs 4.1. Conversation 8.0 no longer runs, and house cleaning 2.4 simply crashes the system. Please note, I have tried running nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but to no avail. What do I do? Signed, desperate. Would you like to know how tech support responded? Dear desperate, we're sure we can help you. First, keep in mind, Boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package, while Husband 1.0 is an operating system. (laughs) We suggest that you enter the command... I thought you loved me.html, then try to download tier 6.2 as you also install the all important GILT 3.0 update. If these applications work as designed, Husband 1.0 should then automatically run the applications Jewelry 2.0 and Flowers 3.5. However, remember that overuse of the above application can cause Husband 1.0 to default to Grumpy Silence 2.5 or Beer (laughs) 6.1. Please note that Beer 6.1 is a very bad program that will download the Snoring Loudly beta. In summary, Husband 1.0 is a great program, but it does have limited memory, and it cannot integrate new applications quickly. 
you might consider buying additional software to improve memory and overall performance. We recommend Lingerie 7.7. <laughs> Good luck. Signed, tech support. It's interesting, isn't it? How relationships change. Whether it's a marriage or a work partnership, a, a great friendship, or one of the other relationships of life, all of us at the start bring to it incredibly high expectations. We're aware, I think, at the beginning of all the things we've got in common. I think of the couples that I marry and how they sit on my couch and how certain they are they've married, they're marrying the perfect person. You know, just these amazing sense of just valuation of the other person that I, that I sense in that particular moment. They're aware of all the things they've got in common, all the good feelings they have in each other's company, all the great potential for what we can be and build together is there at the start of the relationships that we build with other people. This is what you might call the fawning or the romance phase of relationships. And it's uh, characteristic of the start of almost any kind of relationship. It's a time when everyone's hopes are rising. The ancient Greeks used to call this particular bond of affection eros. Eros. It's a romantic, fawning kind of sense of connection. And the kite of connection just seems to go up and up and up during this time uh, of the relationship. Eros, however, is essentially a limited kind of love. It is because love, if you think about it. I love you because you bring me flowers. I love you because you're doing an obvious good job in the workplace. I love you because you touch me that way. I love you because you make me look good or you make me feel good. As pleasant as it is, Eros is an intrinsically narcissistic stage of the relationship. It is one of those childish things the Apostle Paul was referring to in uh, his writings in 1 Corinthians 13. At this point in the relationship, we don't really know the other person yet. We are so drunk on the romance, on the novelty, on the possibilities of the relationship that we don't really actually see the other person accurately yet. What we mainly know is how nice we look and how good we feel when reflected in the mirror of that other person's shining presence. When I am with you, I see what a valuable mate or a co-worker or friend I am. I love you because of what I experience me to be when I'm with you. And I'm not conscious of that. I think I'm seeing you. But what I'm enjoying most about the relationship is me when I'm around you. Without fail, the eros or romantic or fawning phase of a relationship begins to change. The flight becomes familiar it becomes more difficult. The pressures and winds of time and life start buffeting the relationship and we enter into this period when Eros starts to dip down another kind of love has to come along and start working or the program, the kite of the connection, will definitely crash. 
The Greeks called this second sort of love philia. It's the word that we associate with a filial or a friendship connection. It's the kind of bond that grows or it dies as we really learn about each other, as we really start seeing each other. In the learning phase of a relationship, we start to see that the other person is not just an extension of our own selves and hopes, but is actually an entirely separate self. Somebody with a set of attitudes and gifts, perspectives, and issues different from ours. This phase can also feel wonderful for a time. Thank God she's got better math skills than I have. Maybe she can get that checkbook sorted out. Or she can cook, and I'm not so good at that. Or, wow, he's helping me to learn to play golf and and to learn all kinds of stuff. He can fix stuff that's broken. This is great. And then we start to see that there are also these annoying aspects to our differences. Gosh, she didn't do that anything like I would or like I expected. My goodness, he doesn't seem to care at all about that value. Or he doesn't even see that need like I do. We're going to have to fix that. We're going to have to reconfigure that. We're going to replace that. Is what keeps us in there. In time, the very things that we so appreciated about the other person start to drive us crazy. We go from singing, she drives me crazy, to she drives me crazy right? And maybe at one moment we thought to ourselves, oh, I just love how, how organized and how purposeful she is. And then after a while I'm thinking, I, she's so rigid. She's so decisive. Or maybe we start thinking, you know, I, 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 we fall in love with him because he just seems to be so outgoing and so helpful towards other people. And then we start to be driven crazy by the fact that he doesn't ever set a boundary. He's all about other people and not our home life. The very things we loved most are now the things that drive us up the wall and across the ceiling and down the other side. And I'm thinking at this time, If I can only change these things. Philia is essentially if love. Okay? Back in the fawning phase, there's not many ifs. I mean, we're all in at that moment. But in the learning phase, certain conditions and concerns start to set in. I will love you and be for you if the benefits of our relationship continue to outweigh the downsides. If you don't, blow it too badly. If I don't start feeling too badly about this relationship. Beneath the surface, there's this growing concern, this sense that there are some things about you that need to change, some programs that need to be configured or reconfigured or replaced, but a a mounting concern that maybe they won't change. I thought we were the perfect pair. But maybe I fell in love with you, or I hired you, or I took a job with you, or I befriended you, and you were the wrong person. 
maybe I need to move on and find the right person. And so at least 50% of the time in marriage, or better, or more, and an even larger percentage of the time in the other kinds of relationships of life, we do move on. We either give up and go, or we give up and stay, but either way, the kite of that remarkable relationship we once thought we might have together crashes into the earth of the regular. Have any of you been there? The sad thing is that we so often quit too soon. That we quit before we've gotten to that place where all the magic can happen. Where all the dramatic growth of character and joy in our connections are ultimately found. Sadly, so often, we just go from relationship to relationship, whether it's in the employment sphere or the love sphere or some other sphere, we go from relationship to relationship, repeating the fawning phase and the, and the learning phase and then quitting and then moving on and doing it again. But it's only when eros and philia have plummeted that most of us can get to that place where we, if we look for it, can find the upward draft of the third kind of love that the Bible describes. It's only when because love and if love finally fail us that most of us discover the power and the importance of in spite of love. The Greek word that the Bible uses for in spite of love, you know well, it's agape. Agape is the word that St. Paul uses when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when he describes the love that is patient and kind, etc., etc. Agape is this kind of love that says, I will love you in spite of the fact that we're so different. I will love you in spite of the fact that we are so different that it will take patience and kindness to love you. It will take politeness and perseverance to keep in this relationship with you. It will take humility and trust. In short, it's going to take a love like God's love to keep this relationship from falling and failing like everybody else's. Agape is what leads us into the yearning for union phase of relationship. That phase when we unite in a whole different way with a workmate or a love mate or a friend. When you, when you see a really remarkable marriage, and you've seen them, when you see a truly remarkable family or friendship or work relationship, you're seeing people who are in the midst of this long and never quite finished process of uniting with one another in the highest form of relationship possible, this agape form of relationship. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to look together at many of the key attributes or ingredients to establishing this particular kind of powerful bond with other people. But there are two questions in particular that can help us on this flight path. And the first of those questions I want to get at by just sort of taking a step back for a moment. 
when most of us are younger, I know this is true for me, we relate to people out of our insecurity about whether we really have any real gifts, don't we? I mean, we're not sure we do. We're more conscious, perhaps, of the giftedness of others. We're desperately trying to demonstrate that we've got something to bring to the party. We brag, we exaggerate, we retreat, we imitate, we're, we interrupt. It, all of it's driven by this desperate desire to, to, to show that we have some giftedness or try to find some giftedness in the relationship. And as we mature, uh, out of that childish sort of season where we're totally insecure, we can enter unintentionally into a second childish phase in which now we view everyone through the lens of the gifts we've discovered in ourselves. We evaluate other people in terms of what we're strong at. If we're gifted as organizers or communicators, we think that others should be. We're disappointed when they're not. If we're gifted as people of empathy or flexibility, we get irritated at people who seem too decisive or rigid. We get all wound up, in a sense, of the value that we bring to life and knotted up about the fact that others don't bring that particular value. If only a woman were more like a man, says Henry Higgins. If only he were more like me, says a woman. But it's not just a gender thing. We do this with people of either gender. And that's why one of the most helpful questions, if we want to really go up in our relationships, one of the most important questions we can ever ask ourselves is this one. What is it about me that's limited? What is it about me with all my notable gifts that is limited? What would be missing in my life and in the circles I inhabit if everybody were just like me? The Apostle Paul puts it this way, if the whole body were an eye, and eyes are great, right? I mean, they're pretty magnificent. But if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, writes Paul, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If you and I can't get to this place of realistic humility, if we cannot somehow live daily from an authentic awareness of our own limitations and our desperate need of the different gifts that others bring to us, we'll never grow up. We may be gray or hairless, but we will never grow up. We will never go up in our relationships until we find that kind of realistic humility. We'll be like an ear or an eyeball sitting on the ground admiring itself. We'll be like half a kite, always wondering why we can't seem to get airborne. We're bumping along, but we can't seem to really get any height in life. 
So ask yourself, what is it? What is it about me that is tragically limited without the different gifts that my lover, my spouse, my workmates, my friends, brothers, sisters in Christ bring? What is it about me that's limited? And if you're struggling to name those limitations, ask those other people. They have noticed. They have noticed. Then here again, a second bit of wisdom the apostle offers us. Paul writes this. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are what? Indispensable. That's right. In other words, and this is the second question I invite you to sit with. What is it about the people around you, others in the body of your relationships, that needs to be celebrated because what it brings is indispensable? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't things about other people that need changing, okay? I'm not saying that. That would be very naive. There is something called sin, and it has to be dealt with in our relationships. We'll talk some about a strategy for going after some of that next week. But how many times, think about this seriously, how many times has a spouse been fired or a friend fired or a coworker fired for the things that they so obviously lacked only for the people left behind to suddenly wake up to all the things that that person was actually indispensably bringing that we'd never, ever noticed. Why? Because we were so busy pointing out their faults. Think of how obvious the faults and flaws of people were to Jesus. I mean, he saw with absolute clarity, just his disciples, he understood their flaws, He could look at a guy like Simon, uh, the fisherman, and see how insecure the man was, how shifting he was, what a talker and and, uh, blowhard he was, how he failed under pressure. Jesus saw that. But he also saw the grit of which Simon was capable. And so instead of giving him the nickname Windbag or Sandy, as the other disciples, I'm sure, would have thought was far more appropriate for him, Jesus called Simon Peter. He gave him the nickname Peter, literally Rocky. I'm going to call you Rocky because I think you could bring something that can really help my church. And so history records, Peter becomes, by the grace of God and over time, the rock of the early church. In his wonderful book, Organizing Genius, The Secrets of Creative Collaboration, business guru Warren Bennis describes the characteristics of remarkable work groups. Bennis finds particular teams of people who were responsible for some of the most breakthrough, high-flying innovations in modern times. He studies the group that came up with the design of the 747. 
He looks at the group that came up with the design of the graphical user interface that is foundational to all modern uh, co computing. He looks at a variety of these kinds of groups to try and discern what it is about those particular groups that were able to achieve that kind of breakthrough in effectiveness. What was it? What Bennis discovers is that at the center of every single one of these groups is an uncommon kind of leader. The leader is not necessarily more intelligent than other people in the group, frequently not so. This person is not necessarily a harder worker than the other people in the group, not necessarily so. What this person brings is a statistically unusual capacity to recognize the gifts of other people and to create an environment where other people learn to tolerate the differences and the limitations that come with that person and to harness together the potential of working in union. And this creates the breakthrough. Why don't you become that leader? Why don't you become that leader in your home, in your workplace, in your church, in your team, wherever it may be found? Why don't you become the person who instead of naming and shaming people for their limitations, that's all the rage, we're good at that, it's done everywhere, why don't you become the one who delights in people's differences and sees the possibility of those differences meshing for the common good? Why don't you spend the next month celebrating the gifts of your spouse, your children, your workmates, your friends, your church colleagues? Tell them what you consider about them to be indispensable to the life of the body to you, to other people around them. Author Dave Muir writes that a great marriage is not when the perfect couple comes together. In other words, it's not about finding the right person. It's about being the right person. A great marriage isn't when the perfect couple comes together, it's when the imperfect couple learns to enjoy their differences. For this reason, writes the book of Genesis, a man will leave his father and his mother and will be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. Yearning for union is one of the strongest evidences of maturity in the spiritual life. It's a yearning for a genuine union with God, a deeper union with others that is the mark of love in its most developed form, agape. Don't you, don't you yearn for that union in your relationships? Legendary CBS newsman Charles Osgood once told the story of two stroke victims. And with this, I'd like to close. The two stroke victims shared a life in a convalescent home. Margaret's injury had incapacitated the entirety of her left side. Ruth's stroke had damaged the functioning of her right side. 
And what made these conditions particularly sad was that both of these ladies had once upon a time been extraordinarily accomplished pianists. One day, the director of the convalescent center sat them down together on the same piano bench. And he said, Margaret and Ruth, here's what I want you to do. I want you each to put that hand of yours on that keyboard. And I want you both to play this song that you both know. And out of that trembling partnership, there arose the strains of a magnificent music that simply could not have been created any other way. Friends, there is some music the world longs to hear, needs to hear, but it will not get created until we learn to recognize our limitations, celebrate what the other does and can bring, and find union in the higher calling, the melody of God's grace and truth. We are all but angels on one wing. But now and again, the grace of God comes to us. Now and again, the grace of God gives us the vision, that uncommon vision, to see each other for who we are and whose we are, and to recognize the possibilities, and to find together the heights of new flight altogether. As the Apostle Paul put it this way, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And what that body can do, what that body can do when each part recognizes its own limitations and is able to celebrate the indispensable strengths that the other parts offer, what that body can do, whether it's a marriage or a family or a work team or a friendship or a church, what that bo- a nation maybe, what that body can do is, well... Remarkable. Truly, truly remarkable. Please pray with me. Open our eyes and let us see glimpses of truth you have for me. Open my eyes. Illumine me. Spirit divine. And Lord, having given us your greater vision, enable us to love one another as you have loved us. Amen.